along. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8. Now, before I begin this morning, I want to ask a question. What do you think the primary objective of a Bible teacher should be? It doesn't matter if we're in a sanctuary class or if you're in a high school class or if you're teaching little children. What, what should the primary objective of the teacher be? In other words, what, are, what is a teacher are we trying to accomplish? Somebody tell me, what's, what should be our primary objective? Okay, spiritual growth, teaching God's Word. Anybody else? Okay, make sure you teach the truth. See Jesus. Those are all good answers, not the ones I'm looking for, but all good answers. At the end of the day, the primary objective that we're trying to get everybody to is obedience. Obedience. To, 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 to get people to submit to the authority of God's Word. In other words, not only will I hear it, not only will I study it, but I will actually do what it says. That's what we're trying to get everybody to. Um, you see, God's Word can't just be another opinion. You know, you can't, you know, you can't read the Bible and say, well, well, the Bible says I should do this, but Mama says I ought to do this, and my best friend recommends that I do this. It doesn't work that way. God's Word in your life has to be the final overriding statement on what should be done for any issue or any problem or anything that, that we come across. It should be the final word. But how many people don't do that? How many people will, will study the word? How many people will read the word? How many people will even memorize the word, but they don't do the word? Think about this for just one second. Most of you in here probably have kids or grandkids or... or Let's say, for example, that I told one of my boys to clean his room. And the next day, I notice his room aren't clean, and I ask him about it, and he says, Dad, I remember exactly what you said. I even memorized what you said. Do you want me to quote it back for you? In fact, Dad, tonight, some of my friends are going to come over, and we're going to have a study of what it would be like to clean my room. In fact, Dad, I, I can even give you the Greek, strong Greek for some of the words you said. Now, how ridiculous is that? But how many people do exactly that? Read the Word, study the Word, memorize the Word, but they don't do the Word. See, that's the thing. We, we've got to come to the point, and that's my prayer for this church, is that when we study a principle from God's Word, that everybody says, okay, well, if that's what God's Word says, then that's what we've got to do. It's not an opinion. It is the final statement that we read and then we realize that God's, this is God's command and then we go out and we do it. Now, the question is why? <clears throat> because when you are submissive to God's word, you are in the place of blessing. It, it never see, I was talking to somebody this week. It never ceases to amaze me how many people are walking around in disobedience to God's word and they think, that they're under the blessings of God. They think, I'm not doing what God says, but He's still blessing me. Folks, that is as far from the truth as any statement you could ever make. God cannot and will not bless disobedience. 
You may look okay. You may be living in a big house and making lots of money and everything seems to be all right. But if you're walking in disobedience, you are not under the blessing of God. There's no way. It's like a, it's like a disobedient child. God, the Bible says clearly that God chastises those whom he loves. If you're in disobedience, he's going to deal with you. So we want to walk in a, in a place of blessing. And to do that, we need to be submissive to God's word. I read a, came across this statement this week. This is a guy by the name of Sam, Sam Erickson. He's a lawyer, and he's also the chairman of the Board of Elders for Grace Church in California. And he said this, In the dozens of cases that I've handled as an attorney, in every case where I can convince Christians to follow the biblical pattern, without exception, they've been blessed. On the other hand, every time I've seen them disobey Scripture, the results have been bad. Even when they win, they lose. Even when, he says, even when Christians win their lawsuits, in the end, they're bitter, they, they're, there's bad feelings, they, they don't like their lawyer, they don't like how people treat it, there's, just, there's a guilty conscience, they're, they're not blessed. Now, that kind of leads us into today's lesson. So the title of our lesson today is Forbidden Lawsuits. Forbidden lawsuits. And you think, well, you know, this doesn't really mean anything to me. I don't, I'm not in the middle of any lawsuits. But there's some real principles here uh, that you'll see that we can apply to our lives. So here we are in chapter 6, and Paul is dealing with the problem of lawsuits. And evidently, this was an issue that was plaguing uh, the Corinthian church. In a nutshell, members of the church were suing one another. They would have some kind of issue they would have some kind of dispute, and they would just immediately run to court and start, and start suing one another. Now, before we begin to look at what Paul says, I think it's important that we kind of understand some historical background um, of, of how things were in those days. Now, as most of you know, the, the initial Christian church was populated by Jews, right? Jesus was a Jew. Uh, all the apostles were Jews. Uh, Paul was a Jew. Most of the original converts were, were Jews. And the Jews, as a norm, never went to law before Gentiles. In other words, when you had a Jewish community, community they, they, they had a synagogue. And if two Jews had a problem with one another, they had an issue, they would go to the synagogue and they would settle it there. They would let some of the elders uh, preside over this thing and they would figure it out. They would never go outside into pagan law courts. Now, they did this for a couple of reasons. Number one is they were trying to stay unified. Okay, that unity to them was a really big deal. They, there's no way they would go outside to a pagan court and let some judge, some Gentile judge, divide them. So that was number one, is they wanted to stay unified. But number two, and more importantly, they truly believed that God's Word had all the answers to the problems of their life, okay? They, it, it had answers to their legal problems, it had answers to their social problems, it had answers to their family problems, it had answers to their economic problems. So if, if, if all the answers were right there in that Word, why in the world would they ever have to go outside to a court? In fact, they actually considered it, now listen to this, <clears throat> they considered it blasphemy, to ever wind up in a Gentile courtroom. In the, in the, um, in the Jewish Mishnah, which is a compilation of the, rabbi, the oral rabbi teachings of the Jewish people, 
they said this, to take our problems to a pagan court is the same as blaspheming God, for it is in effect saying God doesn't have an answer to this problem. Now, we could probably just stop and go home right there. That's enough said right there. They said when you take your problems to a pagan court, you are in effect saying God's word does not have an answer to our problem. And, that, and they considered that blasphemy. They just, they just would, not, they would not do it. Now, the Greeks and the Romans, though, they didn't view the legal system that way at all. For them, that was just the way you did things. And in fact, if you go back and study it, and I had a, originally I had a bunch of stuff in here and I ended up taking it out. But for them, going to court was just a way of life. Um, they, had, they, had a, they had a very defined arbitration system where regular citizens would serve as arbitrators. They had a very defined jury system. By the way, back then, interestingly enough, juries <clears throat> consisted of either 201, 401, or 501 people or more. So it, the, tw the days of 12-man juries was a long... They, they had 200, 300, 400, 500 people on a jury depending on what kind of case it was and the amount of money um, involved. So back then, courts were just... That was just the way things were done. In fact, most of the court, the trials and the juries and stuff were held outside on the street. So people would just stop and listen. And back those days... There's a real famous lawyer from that time by the name of Cicero. And you go back, they could say anything. They could disparage your character. They could, they could literally get away with anything. And so it was, it was real entertainment. People would stop and just be entertained by these courts that were going on or these, these lawsuits. And so it kind of became a, a good show. And it really, the more you read about it, it really sounds like America today. You know, turn on the TV, and there's a big court trial, and everybody's following and getting into it. What did this one say? What did that one say? People here in America suing each other left and right for, for anything, spilt coffee or, uh, you know, whatever. You know, they're just, just suing each other left and right. Now, some of those people out of that system got saved, right? Some of those Greeks and some of those Romans who were so used to taking people to court they got saved and they became members of the church at Corinth. And like everybody else that's ever gotten saved down through time, they brought their baggage into the church with them. In case you don't know that, everybody kind of brings your own baggage into the church with you when you come. They brought their philosophies into the church. They brought their immoralities into the church. We saw that last week. And they dragged their litigation attitudes into the church as, as well. Now, the principle that Paul's going to give us today is very simple and very straightforward. It is a sin for a Christian to take another Christian to court. Very simple. He just lays it out, no big deal, says it straightforward. It is a sin for a Christian to take another Christian uh, to court. Let's look at verse 1. Paul says this. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, <clears throat> does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And if you read down in verse 6, you'll see that Paul says, but brother goes to law against brother. So what we know here is this scripture, by the way, is not talking about the person next door. Now, we'll get to that a little bit later. You may immediately think, well, what about if I've got a grievance against a, an unbeliever? And we'll get to that near the end. But here in this scripture, Paul is specifically talking about brother against brother or Christian against Christian, okay? And Paul says, I cannot believe 
that any of you would dare to, to do this. It, it literally shocked him that this would go on. Now, it shocked him for a couple reasons. Remember, number one is he was Jewish. And, and as we said earlier, Jews would never do that. They considered it blasphemy to have to go outside the community of faith to settle your problems. They would never do this. But it shocked him even more because Christians would do that. Now, by the way, any idea why would it shock him that Christians would do it? Because the whole principle of being a Christian is love and forgiveness. And, you're, and, and they're not loving each other, not forgiving. Mean, he just cannot, he says, I can't believe you do this. This is literally uh, shocking him. Now, let's read verse 1 again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, let me just point something out right there on that word unrighteous. This has nothing to do with the moral character of the judges or the juries. He's not, when he calls them unrighteous, the, 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 the legal system out in the world, he's not saying, he's not making a judgment on their moral character. There's probably some very moral judges and, 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 and very moral people in the legal system. He's simply saying they're unrighteous because they're not saved. That's all he's saying. They're unrighteous because they're not justified. They don't know Christ. They don't, they don't know the Lord. And he says, why would you ever take your problems to them? Okay. Now, implied here is, this is what he's saying. Why not take your problem to the saints? Don't they have the Word of God? Don't they have the Holy Spirit inside of them? That, that's what he's implying here. Why would you go outside to unrighteous people that don't have the Spirit of God, don't have the Word of God, don't have the wisdom of God, and you've got, you've got people in the church that have those three things. So why would you, why would you ever do that? He, just, he cannot understand why they, why they would do that. In fact, what he's saying here is what kind of testimony is that to the world when you take your problems outside? Well, I'll tell you what kind of testimony it is. Number one, it says, I don't trust my brothers and sisters to give me justice. And number two, it says, I don't trust the Word of God. When a Christian goes outside the church and takes their problems outside, and especially against another Christian, what you're saying is, I don't trust my, my brothers and sisters in the church to handle this, and I don't tr trust the Word of God to handle it. I just don't think the Word of God's got answers. I'm going to go to the legal system for my answers. So it's a terrible, terrible testimony. Now, why would a Christian, a Christian who's supposed to be loving, supposed to be forgiving in a community of faith with other brothers and sisters who have the Spirit of God, have the law of God, have the wisdom of God, why would a Christian then or a Christian now ever do something like that? Okay. Well, according to Paul, there are two reasons. And what he's going to tell us is that a Christian who takes another Christian to court, who sues another Christian, has two fundamental misunderstandings. Okay. Number one, they misunderstand the importance of the, excuse me, of the church. You see, we live in a day where people kind of view the, well, I won't say everybody, obviously I don't think a lot of you do, but a lot of people view the church almost like it's a social club, almost like it's the Lions Club or, or some other club that you go to. But Paul says that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the church. There, the, the, the church has a rank and an importance that these people fundamentally misunderstand. Look what he says in verses 2 through 3. He said this, Do you not know that the saints 
will one day judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? Now, these are a couple of really amazing statements, and to be quite honest with you, I'm not sure anybody really understands them. Okay, I'm just going to tell you that right off the bat. They're, they're amazing statements, but I'm not sure anybody really understands fully either one of them. Now, we get a hint of what Paul is talking about in several scriptures. For example, in Daniel 7.27, it says this, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation 26, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What we know from those scriptures is that one day, if you are a Christian, you are going to reign with Christ. Now, that means in some way you're going to have oversight over things, over cities, over countries, over nations. And we're going to have authority. We're going to be making decisions. Okay? We're going to be co-regents or co-reigners with Christ. Now, can I answer all of your questions about that? No, I got no clue. I'm just telling you what it says, but I can't give you the specifics. But in some way... We're going, to be, we're going to have the authority that he has. We're going to reign the way that, that he does. But here's Paul's point and what you need to take away from this. If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, one other quick thing. Don't misunderstand the word trivial. Okay? Paul is not saying that a Christian should only handle trivial cases in-house and, and the more complex cases should go outside to the legal system. That's what's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is this. One day, you will sit on the Supreme Court of Heaven. Anything that happens on this earth is trivial compared to that. That's what he's saying. He's comparing the heaven to the earth. Anything you have to decide down here is nothing compared to the decisions you'll have to make one day when you reign with Christ. So that's what he means by that. This, these things down here are nothing. They're trivial. So he's not saying that we should just handle trivial cases in-house and take the more complex outside. He goes on and says this, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, do I understand what that means? Once again, not really. Okay. Um, there's only two possibilities, by the way, here, and I'll throw this out real quickly and move on. You're either going to judge good angels or bad angels. And the good angel, the bad angels are what? Demons. You're going to judge one or the other. Um, we know, for example, that bad angels will be judged. First, Second Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. One day, demons will be judged. Will we be part of that judgment? It, it could be. That could very well be what Paul means by that. Could he mean good angels? Well... First of all, we, they haven't done anything wrong, so we know we won't judge them in that sense. But if the word judge 
is synonymous with rule, then maybe we'll rule over angels. You know, it's just like today. Doesn't, don't you think God tells angels where to go and what to do? I need you to go here. I need you to go do that. Could it be that one day when we reign with Christ over kingdoms and over whatever we reign over, that we would tell angels, I need you to go here. I need you to do that. I need you to do this. It could be. Okay? I, I don't know what he means. But here, regardless of what Paul means, Paul's point is this. One day, you will have authority over the highest class of being ever created. You will have authority over them. If that's true, how much more should you be able to judge matters pertaining to this life? How much more should you be able to handle these things that happen in the, in the church? You see, if we can judge the world and angels someday... By the way, not because there's anything great in us. Why, would we be, why do we have this authority? Because we have the Spirit of God, we have the Word of God, and we have the wisdom of God. He's given us those things. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the wisdom of God. Those are the things that give us the ability to make judgments. And he says, if you have those things then you ought to be able to settle your own matters down here on earth. Now, that's a fairly good argument, wouldn't you agree? And that's, that's Paul's whole point. One day, you're going to reign with Christ. How in the world are you not able to settle your own differences among yourselves? Let's read verses 4 through 6 as he moves on. He says this, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Paul says if you have problems and issues in the church between believers, then settle your issues in the family. Keep them in-house. Take care of them. Don't let them go outside. You have God's Word. You have God's Spirit. Shouldn't you be able to judge between one another. That's, all, that's, that's Paul's whole point. Don't take it outside. Deal with it inside. Now, let's put it into practice. How about it? Let's say that we have two Christians at River of Life that have a dispute with each other. The first Christian, I'll just go ahead and tell you, is entirely innocent, and the second Christian is entirely guilty. The second Christian is defrauding or cheating, or swindling the, the first Christian. Everybody with me? That's our situation. First person's innocent, second person is guilty, they're cheating the second one. And we hear about it, and we heard, we've heard they're going to file a lawsuit, and they're going to go to court, and they're going to fight it out uh, in the Walkula County Court, or the Tallahassee Court, or wherever they're going to go. So we hear about it as a church. Now, what is the first thing that we would ask them not to do? Don't, don't do that. Wouldn't we say that? Wouldn't we say, man, listen, according to the Word of God, what you're doing is wrong. Please don't do that. Give us an opportunity to settle in-house. In so we would ask them, don't sue each other. That's a terrible testimony. Can you imagine? Um, let's just say uh, me and Eddie have a dispute. And then we decide, can you, what kind of testimony is that? The rest of the county here, did y'all hear that Derek and Eddie Bremner are suing each other? Really? What kind of testimony is that? I won't tell you who's the bad guy in that scenario. It's got to be Eddie, obviously. 
but you get the point, right? Why would we go out? It's a terrible, terrible testimony. So the church says, I, I, you know, y'all, we need to, we tell those two people, can you handle it in house? And they agree. They said, okay, we'll 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 do that. We'll let we'll handle it in house. Now, let's say we bring it before the elders. We look at the situation. We see what's happening. It's clear to everybody involved that the second person is in the wrong. Now, here's my question. How do we deal with that second person? And I hope y'all can answer this. How do we deal with it? We talked about it the last two weeks. Church discipline, folks. Right? You've got somebody in your church that's committing sin. How do you deal with it? Church discipline. You talk to him privately. Look, man, you're wrong. What you did, you swindled this person. You, you cheated them out of their money. You need to, you need to, you need to, uh, to repent of that, and you need to pay him his money back. And he, a, a, a few days go by, a few weeks, nothing happens. We go to him with a larger group. We take a, a group of elders, maybe. Hey, you know, we've, we've looked at this case. You're wrong. You need to repent. You need to pay him his money back. He refuses. What's the third step? We get up on the church. We announce it to the church, right? We got a person in this church that swindled somebody else. And, I mean, however we do that. By the way, if he goes on and on and on, eventually the fourth step is you're not welcome here anymore. And, by the way, we would take and the fourth step. This far we've tried to get him to pay the money back, tried to handle everything. At the fourth step, remember what Paul said at the fourth step? Turn him over to who? Satan. Maybe at the fourth step, we turn him over to the sheriff's department. Everybody see that? Hey, we tried. But maybe it's time for the, we're going to turn you out. We're going to pull back from this situation. Now you're on your own. Everybody with me? I'm just saying, those were things that would have to be uh, considered. So we would deal with that person using church discipline. In fact, look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.11. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or violer, a drunkard or a what? A swindler, a cheater. He cheats people out of their money. Don't, don't have anything to do with them. So we would be perfectly in line in dealing with that person in church discipline. Now, what about the first guy? Let's say that we dealt with that other person over a period of months. And finally, that he never would pay the money back. We put him out of the church, turn him over to the sheriff's office, whatever. We go to the first person, and you think, surely that guy should be able to sue him to get his money back. After all, it's only fair, okay? Not according to Paul. Remember, the first guy, completely innocent you would think, well, it's probably okay for him to sue that guy to get his money back. That, that just sounds fair, doesn't it? Not according to Paul. Look at what Paul says in verses 7 through 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why would you not rather suffer wrong? Why would you not just be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You see, this is, that situation in Scripture right there is pretty much the exact same situation that we just described. You see, one person is guilty of defrauding their brother. That's what Paul says in verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He said, there's people in your church that are cheating your own brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's ridiculous. Okay? 
but the other person is innocent, the victim of the fraud. So which one does Paul say is in the wrong? Anybody? He says both of them. You're both in the wrong. You see, a Christian, even an innocent one, who takes another Christian to court, has another fundamental misunderstanding according to Paul, and that is they misunderstand or they forget how a Christian is supposed to act. Now, you're not going to like the rest of this. I'll just tell you right now. The rest of this is going to go down hard. You know, it just sometimes Scripture does not go down easy. There's something about Scripture that sometimes when we try to chew it up and swallow it, everything in our human nature says, no. That's why I said earlier, what are, what's the whole point of this? To bring us to obedience. Because we, we won't like the rest of this. Number one, Christians, what? Forgive. How many times have we prayed this prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, forgive us what we owe as we forgive people who owe us. Isn't that what it's saying? That doesn't go down too good, does it? Colossians 3.13, Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's what Paul's saying. Just Why wouldn't you just let yourself be wronged? Don't worry about it. Just forgive them. And you're sitting there thinking, but Paul, you don't understand. He, he, he swindled me. He cheated me. He got my money. And Paul says, just let yourself be wronged. Okay? Christians forgive. All right? But Jesus, by the way, doesn't stop there. Look at this scripture right here. Matthew 5, 38-41. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. I want you to notice something about the scripture. Everything in this scripture is about how Christians react. I'm going to read this and, and, and the next part of this. In this passage right here, something is being done to a Christian. The Christian is innocent. They haven't done anything. And something is being done to them. And in, in, in every way, Jesus has said, this is how you should react. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give me your coat also. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it too. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now, every time I read that, I think, why? What, what is going on? Why in the world would you tell us to do that, Jesus? Somebody sues you in court and they, and they win your shirt, give them your, give them your, give them your coat. It, it's all about the way you react to injustice. The way you react when something is done about you says everything about you as a Christian. That's what Jesus is saying. The way you react says everything about you as a Christian. You see, the reaction of a Christian should be that everything that I have in this world isn't mine anyway. You know, when you go through life and everything you've got, man, I earned this, I worked for this, I made this, this is mine, ain't nobody taking it from me. Well, if you're a Christian, you go through life, man, God gave me this. I'm just a steward of this. God gifted me this. In fact, at the end of the day, he, if, if God's just loaned it to you, 
If he decides to pass it around, it's going to get passed around. Might not seem right to you, but it, it's his money. It's his property. I'm just, I'm just watching over it for a little while. If he decides to pass it around. See, that's the attitude of a real Christian. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across here. And you may think, well, what about justice, right? Does this mean that Christians deny a basic sense of justice that everybody seems to have? Does this mean, does Christianity teach that wrongs won't be made right? No, it doesn't teach that at all. In fact, that's not what Jesus means. When Jesus tells us to return good for evil, he doesn't mean that no price is required. He means that God will pay it so we don't have to. Okay? See, that's the second thing uh, when Christians take another Christian to court. Paul says, not only do you misunderstand that Christians are forgivers, but you also misunderstand that Christians trust God for justice. Look at what Paul says in Romans 12, 17 through 21. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave it to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their head. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. You see, the, one, the reasons it's so... There's something innate inside human beings that says an eye for an eye. You steal from me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make this right. Everything in us wants to make it right. And God is saying, step aside, boy. I'll make it right. Let me deal with it so you don't have to. Okay? So there's this reaction. He's concerned about our reaction. Step aside, let me handle it. You forgive and move on. Okay? I'll take care of it. The question is, do you trust God to do that? Or do you feel like you have to do it yourself? See, most of us think, man, i got to do it myself to make sure this gets done. And that just shows that we're not trusting God for, for vengeance. We're not trusting God for, for justice. But God is, in fact, a God of perfect justice. He sees every wrong. His memory is absolutely perfect. And one day, He will repay. If you stole and it hadn't been covered by the blood, you're going to pay for it. If you murdered and it hadn't been covered by the blood, you're going, to be, you're going to pay for it. If you've lied, if you've cheated, if you've done anything you shouldn't have done and it's not covered by Christ's death on the cross, you're going to pay for it. Okay? The question is, are we going to trust Him to take care of it? Until that time comes, trust Him. Leave it to Him. Show that you actually believe there is a just God in heaven by the way that you can lay down your desire for vengeance. See, when a Christian lays that down and says, you know what, I'm going to let it go. You know what that shows? That shows you really believe there's a God in heaven that one day will avenge you. I don't have to do it because he's going to take care of it. But when you try to get your own vengeance, you try to get your own payback, that shows you're not putting your faith in God. You're not trusting him to give you justice. And I know what people say, but he stole my money. <laughs> Right? How am I going to replace that? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to get by? Well, that brings us to the third thing. Christians trust God for provision. Okay? Look at Matthew 6, 31 through 33. 
don't worry about these things. This is Jesus again. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all that you need. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. He's saying don't worry about it. He's told, that's why Paul said, why don't you just let yourself be wrong? It would be better for you to let yourself be wrong than to try to get your payback in a, in a court. Just, just let it go. Just forgive. Trust God for justice and trust God for provision. So when a Christian takes another Christian to court, look at what they're not doing. They're not forgiving. They're not trusting God for justice. And they're not trusting God for provision. Paul said, why, why would you do that? You're not acting like a Christian. Now, as I close this morning, I want to add something, okay? I think what Paul is giving us here is a guiding principle, okay? In other words, there may be circumstances where it is necessary for Christians to go to court. Okay, I don't think Paul is ever saying here, you should never do it. I think he's saying 99 times out of 100 or 999 times out of 1,000, you should never do this. But there may be circumstances. For example, you could have someone who has gotten divorced and then they become a Christian. And maybe there's a court situation where they've got custody issues or something like that that have to be dealt with. Okay, I, I think there's no personal vengeance there. There's no monetary gain. Uh, there's no personal gain of any kind. I mean, sometimes you have to do it. And I wouldn't make any kind of moral judgment on that. I, I think there are situations where you may have to do it. So I'm not saying that the Bible forbids ever entering a courtroom under any circumstances. What the Bible is saying is this. If your motive is vengeance, if your motive is recompense, if your motive is getting what you deserve, then you're violating God's word. You're not acting like a Christian. Everybody with me? Okay, so again, I'm not, I don't, there's not, this is not a blanket statement. There may be cases where it has to happen, but if your motive is vengeance, your motive is recompense, your motive is getting what I deserve, then the Bible says you're, you're, you're violating the principles of, of God's word. And the general principle here is very clear. Christians do not take other Christians to court. If you've got an issue, bring it to the elders. Bring it to the pastor. There are, there are, trust me, there are men in this church, women in this church, who are wise, who are loving, who are forgiving, who are merciful, that you would be way better before them than going out there and throwing your money down a toilet out there in a legal system. Handle it in-house. Trust me. If you've got an issue, let the church handle it in the family. Now, one final question. What if the other person is not a believer? I've got an issue with another person, but they're not a Christian. They're an unbeliever. Okay? Somebody tell me, what should I do? Yeah, see, that's really true. I, I, this is for me. You, each one of you got to figure out your own thing. But I myself personally would find it very difficult, if not impossible, to ever sue an unbeliever. Okay? And the question is, why? Because how do I do that and act like a Christian? <laughs> how do I do that, and if I do it, I'm not forgiving, I'm not trusting God for justice, and I'm not trusting God for provision. 
I'm breaking the same principles as I would with a, with a, with a Christian. Again, what are the principles? Christians forgive. Christians trust God for provision and justice. In the end, listen, I'm not trying to protect my property. I'm trying to protect my relationship with Him. Let me say that one more time. In the end, I'm not trying to protect my property. I'm trying to protect my relationship with Him. Next week, I'm going to begin the lesson. We've got a little bit of time here with a, with a parable. I'll, I'll give you a little parable here. This is called the, the parable of the American atheist. I'll give you a preview in the next week because this kind of goes toward this. A man is walking down in his neighborhood. Let's say it's the farm. Anybody here live in the farm? Yeah, we've got a couple of farmers here. Um, a man's walking through his neighborhood in the farm, middle-aged man, and he's walking along, and he's got a drink can in his hand. And he's just finished drinking it, and he's walking, and as he walks along, you notice him. You just happen to be watching him from somewhere, and he doesn't see you. And as he's walking along, he looks... There's a, he walks by a neighbor's house, and there's a big row of hedges that, that, that blocks him from the house. And as he walks along, he looks to the left, and he doesn't see anybody, and he takes a quick glance behind him, and he doesn't see anybody, and he tosses that drink can over into his neighbor's yard. Now, here's the thing about that man. I call that man a practicing atheist, and here's why. Because he had a decision to make. By the way, why... Did, why is anybody ever... Who, don't we hate to carry an empty drink can? Don't we? It's like, it's so inconvenient, right? It's like a just a pain, and you want to get rid of it. So he knows, he's got this decision to make. He knows his house is, you know, maybe another quarter mile up there till he gets to the trash can, and he don't want to carry it, so he has this decision to make. But here's the thing. He can see what's in front of him. His, his, on the right side, he's blocked to the house. He know, underneath him is the ground. Over to the left is, he glances to the left to make sure he's covered. He looks behind him so he's covered. But where didn't he look? He didn't look up. See, in that one second, that one instance, he had a moral decision to make. He looked to see what other people thought, but he never looked to see what God thought. See, in that moment, that man's an atheist. You see, folks, in every decision that we make in life, whether to sue somebody, the question is, are you looking up? Are you saying, God, what do you say about this? If you're not, you're just an atheist. In that point in time, right there, you're, just, you're a practicing atheist because you're not saying, God, what do you say? I was thinking about this on the way here this morning. Every decision that we make, we should be saying, God, what do you say about this? And that should be our guiding principle as to what we, what we do or not. And we'll pick that up a little more um, next week. Listen. To be defrauded by a man is not to be defrauded by God. I heard somebody say this week, and I thought this was so cool. You remember when you were a kid and you'd pick teams? You'd, have, you'd divide into captains, and you'd always pick. Who would you pick first? You always pick the best person first. Folks, listen, if you're a Christian, you have picked God. He is on your team. You cannot lose. Think about it that way. He's on your team. I got God sitting here. I mean, he. listen, it, just because that person, that man, that woman does something, hasn't. Done, listen, at the end of the day, God's got your back. He's on your team. He's going to take care of you. The question is, will you trust him? Will you obey his word? Will you say, okay, God, you told me to forgive. I'm going to forgive. 
You told me to trust you for justice, I'm going to trust you for justice. You told me to trust you for provision, I'm going to do that. And you move on. The question is, for each and every one of us, is are we going to trust him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 1 Corinthians 6, Lord, uh, 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 